The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janice. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. Welcome back to the Land of the Unsolved. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or leave a review. You can also support us by clicking on the support button on our Anchor homepage. As we continue to work on the investigation into the unexplained death of Jody Lake Cornu, we came across a book about another mysterious death in Baltimore that we just couldn't ignore. The book An Unexplained Death, The True Story of the Body at the Belvedere, explores in detail the death of Ray Rivera. Rivera was a 32-year-old filmmaker who had relocated in Baltimore from Los Angeles to work for the financial publishing firm Agora. But in May of 2006, he went missing. A week-long search led to the discovery of his body in a second-floor office of the Belvedere Hotel in the city's Mount Vernon neighborhood. Police suggested Rivera had jumped to his death. But friends and family say Rivera was far from suicidal. Which brings us back to the book, which explores Ray's case in detail and the odd history of the Belvedere and Baltimore's penchant for unexplained deaths. To discuss the book, we are joined by the author, Makita Brotman. Brotman is a professor of humanities at Maryland Institute College for Art and is the author of multiple books, including The Great Grisby and The Maximum Security Book Club. Makita, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. First, I just want to say it was just great read. I would recommend it to anybody. It's a fascinating case, and you did a great job of exploring all the facets of it, which could go on forever. But before we you know, talk about the book, can you tell us a little about Ray Rivera? Because you did a lot of character study with him. So who was he? Um, yeah, he sounds like a, a really interesting and genial guy. I mean, he was, um, as you said, he was 30, 32 at his death. He was um, originally from Florida, and he was a water polo player for a long time, a professional water polo player. Um, very athletic. He was I can't remember his actual height, but it was like six, six foot five, something six like that. Six foot five, I think, yeah. Yeah, very, very tall, very athletic, um, very handsome and muscular. And that's one of the reasons that, that struck me about the, the missing poster. I was thinking, like, how could a guy like that go missing? Because he seems so conspicuous. But yeah, he was a professional water polo player. He played um, water polo for Barcelona. And... 
and he lived in Cal he moved to California after that, which is where he went to school. And he'd always wanted to be a screenwriter. So mm -hmm. after he after his water polo career was over, he started taking screenwriting classes and he'd um, written a couple of screenplays, but nothing had been picked up. So he was offered a job by a friend of his, Porter Stansbury, who worked at Agora to write financial newsletters. And so he decided to take take uh, his friend up on that for a while. It was meant to be a temporary job, while he um, while he waited for while he worked on his screenplays and you know waited for something else to come along. So he was in Baltimore temporarily, um, yeah. and that's that's when the the mystery began. Yeah. Um, just for full disclosure, before I ask the next question, um, as a reporter at the Baltimore Examiner, I wrote about this case. So if I ever chime in with something, it's just because I wrote about it and I find this, I have a personal interest in it myself. So Taya, you had a question. So you said he worked for a company called Stansberry, which is a subsidiary of Agora. What is Agora? Uh, that's a good question, actually. It's, it's kind <laughs> of mysterious. Um, yeah. It's a very large company um, based in Mount Vernon. And um, it's kind of inconspicuous. If you look, if there's a lot of mansion, old, those old mansions in Mount Vernon that just have a very discreet plaque outside saying Agora. And basically, it's a company that runs a large number of subscription newsletters, email newsletters, um, advertising financial shares and stocks and shares and those kinds of things that like kind of promote financial investments um, and investment and, strategies. Yeah, and strategies, and, and it's mostly kind of. It's sort of like libertarian, aimed at people who are suspicious of the government and want to avoid paying tax. And there's lots of different um, subsidiaries of Agora. There's one that is about um, investing abroad, and there's one of there's a health strategy. There's a health company. So there's there's lots and lots of divisions. So it's really hard to say what Agora is. But basically, I mean, it's called a publishing company, but what they publish is basically emails, email newsletters, and um, it's. It's not an illegitimate company, but some of the um, advice is a little dodgy. <laughs> yeah, it's strange, which is part where the story um, kind of gets wrapped up in it. But so give us, uh, not to put you on the spot, but give us like a sequence of the overviews that led up to his disappearance, right? So he's home one day and he just leaves the house. Yeah, he's home one day. And at this point, he's not, he's no longer working for Agora, but he's working independently as a um video he makes videos and he's working freelance for Stansbury and um but he's already decided to leave Baltimore move back to LA he's um he, he, they put the house in the market and one day he's at home in um he, they live at a house in a northwood neighborhood Allison is away his wife and he gets the house guest the house guest staying there female house guest she she hears him get a phone call during the afternoon and she hears him say oh shit as if it was a um something he'd forgotten mm -hmm. he leaves the house comes back momentarily then leaves again and he's just wearing flip-flops and um like shorts yeah or shorts with, didn't take anything with him went off in his wife's car and that was the last time he was seen yeah so it's a very i don't even think did he even take his wallet or did he just took like 20 dollars or something it was like something weird yeah. like he, he it was like a weird way to leave the house yeah, yeah. like he thought he wasn't gonna be gone that long or something yeah basically nothing and there's certain other things like he had he wore a um a retainer to straighten his teeth at night mm -hmm. things like that he didn't take with him so things it was clear that he didn't think he was going to be overnight going overnight um, but right. there was no sign of him for an, another week. And it, this is someone who's never gone missing before. Um, big circle of family and friends, stable, 
mental and physical health. I mean, not the kind of person you would expect to go missing. So you have an interesting story about how the body was found. Can you tell how us Ray about that? How Ray was found, I guess we could say. Yep, yeah, well, yeah. Right, how well, Ray both, was found. Both the car and the body were found not by the police, but by um, Ray's friends and relatives. So it was, um, I think it was Alison's parents that found the car, which was parked actually right nearby in the Belvedere parking lot which the police had apparently been searching, um, but I don't know, they'd overlooked it. So it was the, it was the parents that found the car. And then a week after he, he was missing, I think maybe eight days, some of his friends were searching the, the Belvedere parking lot. That's the multi-story parking lot next to the Belvedere. And they got to the top floor, looked over the edge, and they saw um, a pair of flip-flops on, the, on one of the lower roofs of, it's like an annex roof above the, Belvedere, so it's like the second story of the Belvedere. They saw flip flops, something that could have been a cell phone, and also a hole in the annex roof. So while they weren't sure what they'd seen, it seemed um, pretty ominous. Yeah. Um, it's so weird, you know, do you think about it? You leave your house in flip flops. I mean, where could you be going if you right. leave your house in flip flops? Yeah. I mean, you're not um, really ready to go walking, even around Mount Vernon, which is a pretty, you know, gritty urban yeah, area with yeah. rats and bottles. And, and if it was a meeting, it must have been a very casual meeting with someone that he knew very well. It couldn't have been an, it, right, it a formal. Have been, yeah, a formal meeting or a meeting with someone he'd never met before. Yeah. Um, and, and it also seemed like it was something that was sort of spare of the moment unexpected so once the body was found um you know and you know his wife and his family uh, did the police immediately start thinking it was suicide or start trying to tell the family it was suicide or how did the suicide theory evolve from your perspective because it was i felt it was police driven not the family didn't believe he committed suicide no but i think it was treated as suicide immediately there was a strange note left um taped to his computer at home right. and you know that that led to all kinds of speculations but I, w I live at the Belvedere and at the time when the body was found I remember watching this huge crowd of cadets came mm -hmm. in and was kind of swarming all around the building so it, it appeared to me pretty immediately that it was being treated like a suicide. I mean, I, I watched the police clean up um, the flip-flops and so on on the roof, and it was very treated very casually. It wasn't being treated like a crime scene at all. They were kind of throwing things to each other, and there was no, like, knocking on doors and asking people if you'd right. seen anything suspicious. I think the assumption was right from the start that it was a suicide, and I I mean, it, it does seem <laughs> natural if you hear that someone's um, taken a plunge from the roof of a, a building like that, you assume that they've jumped rather than they've been pushed. But it did seem um, pretty sh pretty soon afterwards that it was being treated as a suicide. Now, I thought it was very interesting how difficult it is to access the roof of the Belvedere. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's, it's probably even more difficult now. But even at the time, it's hard to find. Um, it's not accessible even to residents. I mean, there are the the door there are two doors there and one is like at the a, a door at the back of the 13th floor which was a bar at the time but it wouldn't have been open at that time that ray was there and it wouldn't have been accessible to non-residents either so he'd have to get there in the elevator which needs a card um to access and then um even once you get to the 12th floor which is also inaccessible it's hard to find where the stairs to the roof are mm -hmm. and and then again, you need to you need to have an access card, 
And if you didn't know where you were going, it would be very difficult to find the place. Plus, someone who's so conspicuous and big as he is, it would be very strange yeah. for him to get there without, you know, without being stopped, without him questioning people, asking the way to the roof, or them questioning, what are you doing here? Or, you know, why do you need to go to a floor that's not accessible to members of the public? People did say that he had been to the... 13th floor bar before but I mean Allison said that she had which is a bar in the third the top of the Belvedere that people go to a lot it's a pretty popular bar or yeah. what it was a popular yeah. bar with a big nice view of the city right but the other thing is that Ray was terrified of heights um apparently so Allison said that his wife said they would never have never had gone to that bar and she kept pretty meticulous receipts and found no receipts from that bar let me, let me ask you a question because it was really I think you mentioned this in the book and if, I, if you didn't, I'm wrong, but people heard a loud crash the night that he probably died, right? Did, did you hear a loud noise I, or was that yeah. apocryphal? Or? No, I heard it, it around about 10. I don't know if anyone else heard it, but I heard it. Um, and it was it was like loud enough to make the windows rattle a little bit in the frames. But it was, but I looked out the window, there was no accident or anything. I just thought, but, you know, one of those noises in the night, nothing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea really what it was. And it was only later looking back that I kind of put two and two together that is grisly that, yeah that's so, disturbing. so so just so people understand Belvedere is an old hotel you know we, we didn't describe that so the Belvedere Hotel has been around for a while you one thing that's interesting about the book is you give sort of a history of the building um, it's been a hotel but it fell into disrepair and now it's condominiums or what is it now and what was it before yeah it was a hotel it was built in 1902 and it was a very grand hotel at the time but it's it had never been really financially viable i mean it's sort of too grand for the for the city and for the clientele mm -hmm. and yeah it's been various things over the years it's it been bought by various managers um it was a um an ill-fated dorm for a while for various students from different universities well, I saw in that Baltimore. Was interesting. and now it's condos um it's owned by a condo company and um and most of the units are con own condos but there's also a catering company that runs the the big ballrooms on the on the twelfth floor and mm -hmm. the first floor. So that so it's still a popular venue for weddings and right, meetings a lot of weddings. and things. Yeah. So the so the big ballrooms are still used, and of course there's the Owl Bar down there, which is a very popular sort of old speakeasy type bar. Mm -hmm. um, so the I mean it still has the old grandeur, and the function rooms are still intact, and it's it's a really interesting place place yeah. to live. So you also talk about how strange it is that Ray landed so far from the building. What was unusual about where his body landed? Well, it, it was a, a, ver a very long way from the side of the building and at least the hole that he, his, what, that he went through. And um, the um, I, I don't know very much about this, but um, I, I think there were, there were a number of forensic um, physicists that I spoke to who have who are experts in falls from a height and know about the vo velocity and things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, the conclusion was that he had to, it had to have been taken taken a running jump to get that far. Wow. So um, it couldn't have been a push because of the the way that he landed feet first. Um, a push. Crazy. A person would kind of somersault. So he clearly it was it was a, a running jump. There's, there's there seems to be no doubt about that. And again, most people would say running jump equals suicide. But 
are there circumstances in which someone there are things worse than taking a running jump yeah. would you take a running jump at gunpoint who yeah. knows i mean it's possible and i mean he would have i think what you said in the book and i think this was like a, he would have been traveling 11 miles per hour or right something. that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. and wow. you know it's interesting because when i was working the story i went up to that roof and you you write about this going up there to go sunbathing one time it mm-hmm. it's scary as hell up there it's really scary it's, there's nothing on on the edge yeah. and also i mean it is possible to imagine someone taking a running jump but there's also a lot of like pipes and yeah. you know um outlets and things in the way i mean yeah it's it's not made for no there's no runway there. there like right, here's exactly. where you can take your running jump right. yeah there's nothing yeah. there's nothing um so one piece of evidence you just discussed briefly um was the supposed note that the police tried to say it was a suicide note but i believe the fbi did not concur do you know what he wrote about in that note was there any anyone give you any of the content of that um yeah it's a list it's it's written as a list and it's a, it's not exactly a note mm-hmm. it's um one of the another peculiar thing about the story is that the day before he he died he visited with the local freemasons to right. ask about joining and the note begins with language used by the freemasons um a phrase that begins brothers and sisters and it ends with a, another phrase that's commonly used in, in in the freemasons and the rest of the notes really a list of um companies and abbreviations for um media devices like mpeg jpeg uh, a list of people that he knew and a request to make them five years younger and also a list of celebrities famous people who died that recently like christopher reeve for example so it's a really odd a really odd (laughs) note i mean yeah the fbi behavioral analysts concluded it was not a suicide note because it wasn't addressed to anyone in particular it wasn't left um in right. front of anyone, it wasn't given to anyone in particular. Yeah. So it was a It very, doesn't sound like a suicide note. It no, just sounds like rambling, you know. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, Alison said that because he was a writer, he was always jotting things down on napkins. And, you know, she, she has piles and piles of boxes of notes that he made. So it wasn't unusual for him to write um, ambiguous and uh, unusual creative notes to himself. But this was particularly unusual in that it was typed and the the list format she said those those were unusual things she thought it might be a code of some kind that's really interesting and the other thing that sort of sheds or sort of throws some water on the suicide theory is that weekend you spoke to a person i spoke to who was a person who was renting computers i mean ray was in the middle of a project he wasn't distraught i mean you talked to the yeah. guy who talked to him right and said he was just yeah. trying to get a project done yeah i mean most i mean he was not only making plans for that summer the future but he was actually making plans for that weekend um he booked an editing suite to edit his video that weekend and he was um so that seems really really unusual that that not not just long-term plans but short-term plans too yeah i mean why if if it's the last thing you're going to do in the world why book an edit suite for that weekend it and, just and, seems like, and borrow all that money as you point out in your book he borrows money to buy equipment he's got right. a production company he just started yeah he's making plans yeah he's just starting out in the world mm-hmm. um he's they're planning to have children they put the house in the market and nothing in his past or current life suggests that he was depressed or mentally destroyed that i never heard from anybody as well no one ever said like ray was brooding (laughs) he was a very gregarious um outgoing guy yeah and in fact i I recently gave a reading 
of this book and a, a couple of people in the audience had known Ray Rivera and they lived in that old Northwood neighborhood and a woman told me like the day before he'd come over and like arranged to pick up a foosball table for her kid or something like he was you know oh, he wow. it was like in the middle of stuff he was doing yeah. things yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk about some of your encounters with police how do you think they handled the case um, they were very, very cryptic about it, and I'm, hmm. you know, I'm not a journalist. I've never um, had other, I never attempted to do anything like this before, so I'm not sure if this is normal. But I could get nowhere. I mean, I couldn't yeah. even find out. If <laughs> it that was is totally normal. well. Yeah. Th- I can say in Baltimore, that's completely right. normal. Right. I don't right. know how it is in other cities, but in Baltimore, being stonewalled, especially about murder, very, very common. Yes. But I mean, I couldn't even find out if it, if it was open or closed. If it if and I couldn't even I couldn't get the police report number I couldn't get the police report um I could get nothing even through the Freedom of Information Act and then I did get things mysteriously for you know for no apparent reason so it, like what things did you get through like the, the police FBI? Re- the well the F I didn't I, I did get the FBI stuff in the end but like the police report which I'd applied for many times and been been told no suddenly arrived in the mail one day so. <laughs> oh wow and was there anything interesting in that um, at the time, I mean, this was pretty early on. So I, there were names of the friends who discovered him, which I want, right. which I could then follow up right, on, right. and information about the um, the circumstances of of the discovery of the body and things like that that were interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, because you describe you you went into the which is I, I went back there too, and it was really interesting. You described the smell because it did sound like it did smell like they had covered up the smell with something but yeah. I guess people had complained about a smell back there for a couple of days right apparently in the next in the office next door yeah but I'm I'm glad that you also went back there because I sometimes I think about it and think like, what was did I imagine that like that, no. that I could actually the same day that a body was found I could walk down to the room and look no, around you could, and like, I snuck yeah. back there I thought same like you that they would never let me back there right. I just walked I decided just to walk back there, and I, there I, I was did too. looking at it. It wasn't. I don't. It wasn't taped off. You know, you could see the the church. It was a mm-hmm. church, which yeah. was just bizarre, and you could see stuff on the floor. It looked yeah. like they just you know gotten out of there real fast and yeah. didn't care. Yeah, and the, I don't know what to say about it. You know, the rafters. There was a lot of damage mm-hmm. from the underside of the roof. The hole was very small on the on the top, but the underside it was, there was a lot of damage. I think there were paint chips and stuff on the floor or yeah. something. Yeah. Wow, but that was that was pretty brave. You went back there. It's kind of it's a little scary. <laughs> um, so, you, you, one thing you talk about in the book that's really interesting is you know Ray Rivera coming to be a financial writer and working with Stansberry Associates. I mean, he wasn't really a financial analyst. He kind of started re- writing the rebound report, and he wasn't really happy with that. Right? That that wasn't something he wanted to no. do. No, I mean, at first, when when Stansbury offered him the job, he had written a, a speculative version of this newsletter that became the rebound report, and it was very successful, and which is why Stansbury gave him the job of continuing to write it. And but he didn't know anything about money. In fact, one of the things I discovered is many people said that he was terrible with money. So he was not the kind of person you'd imagine writing hmm. a financial right. newsletter. No, and, no. And also, um, he was very unhappy with firstly with the writing because he wanted to write creative stuff and wasn't this wasn't his forte. But also, he didn't know anything about stocks and shares, and he right. was giving <laughs> advice every week about what what to invest in, that and is true. then felt responsible when these companies didn't didn't yeah. rebound as, as they right. were supposed to and so yeah he was feeling very 
uneasy about that and gave it up um, not, not, not too long after he'd started it. Yeah. So that wasn't really his field, but he carried on working for Stansbury and they were, they were best friends. Yeah, they, they went back to Florida, right? Because they had yeah. been water polo guys together. Right, they, they were on the same high water school, polo. High school water polo team. Yeah. yeah, but actually Stansbury hired a lot of his um, his old friends from from mm-hmm. Florida. He seemed more interested in, I mean, he, he didn't seem particularly interested in getting experienced financial people, but he's no. more interested in, in hiring his his friends and people that he, he knew from the old days and trusted. Yeah. Yeah. So you spoke with his widow, Allison. What was that conversation like? Well, Allison is convinced that her husband was murdered. And so um, she's very suspicious. And she didn't respond to me for a while. And it took a long time for her to return my calls. And then she wouldn't really talk to me over the phone. She wanted me to go out to L.A. because she was she's, you know, she's convinced that this is that there were people who killed Ray and that there's that they they've gone unpunished and that's you know they're still there so she w- and she warned me about getting involved in this case and as did other people um but on the other hand you know by the time i actually went and out to la and met with her she, it's been a while it had been almost 10 years and mm-hmm. she not moved on but she'd come to a, a different place and was more ready to talk about it and to deal with it but um she hasn't um, th- there hasn't been any resolution for her at all. Yeah. Right. So tough. what kind of warnings did you get to stay away from this case? Well, Alison and other people had told me that whenever any other writers or journalists had tried to investigate the case, that bad things had happened to them. Wow. And, uh, and also I did get some anonymous emails um, because I'd sent out lots and lots of feelers, you know, to, to find people who Ray knew or people at Agora. And I did get anonymous emails telling me uh, to to be careful or saying that Ray was not this was not a suicide you should you should be careful so, and you know so far fingers crossed nothing's <laughs> disastrous has happened to me right. but, uh, but yeah who knows well and also um, uh, you know one thing that's interesting um, that's interesting about the book that I think all good, as I said before, true crime books, you interpolate some of your own experiences, some other stories. Tell me a little bit about your approach to this, because it wasn't just a recounting of the crime and the evidence. You know, you put in a lot of other different perspectives in this. Why did you do that? Well, I, like you, I like true crime books where the, true, where the crime is kind of a springboard for other investigations into other areas of, um, of life. And I think that, you know, people can't, are often kind of dismissive of true crime that it's sort of all about morbid curiosity. Right. Or, mm-hmm. But I, th- I mean, I think nothing could be more important. I mean, it's about life and death, and right. it's about the passions and, and desires and the things that m- make people commit crimes are emotions that we all share. And um, I was really interested in the the story you did about the the, the cop who was who poisoned who was poisoned yeah. right. perhaps by himself because that's a really good example of a a, a, a true crime case that uncorks this well of like mm-hmm. human motives and, and the complexity of the, the human condition. I think the, the best true crime stories do that. So I tried to use it as a springboard for my own interest in my own morbid curiosity, <laughs> my own interest in suicide and the uh, um, and the, the reasons behind suicide, the possibilities of suicide, um, the way that suicide has changed over time and also the history of the Belvedere because there's a connection between hotels and suicide that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, there may have been more than um, the usual number of suicides at the Belvedere because 
when the Phipps Clinic opened at Johns Hopkins, you know, that was one of the first um, clinics that treated depression and mm -hmm. it was a kind of fancy clinic and a, a lot of people would travel to the clinic and then the Belvedere would be their first stop on the mm -hmm. way and a lot of them sometimes decided not to check in at the, oh, wow. at the clinic, decided to, you know, to, to, to jump. End. And they would jump? Not, no, not necessarily jump, oh, but... But just kill themselves yeah, one way or the other. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. Well, or, or during a break from treatment. or. Wow. So how did Ray's case relate to other examples of suicide that had happened at the Belvedere? Um, I found another example of someone who jumped. Well, there, there are a couple, but this one in particular, it, it was a long time ago, but... Um, and it was when there was still a trolley line on Charles Street. But it was someone who'd also launched themselves from the Belvedere and landed quite, kind of a long way out. Um, but the other jumpers had not um, had not landed very far out. So I mean, there was a there was a, a whole variety of, 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 of different mm -hmm. trajectories and velocities. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, it it's usually. Um, a spontaneous decision to jump, mm -hmm. and it's usually and it's generally um, a method chosen um, when someone's in the grips of psychosis. Okay, it's, it's very rarely kind of a rational choice that people yeah, make. Sure. Yeah. Wow, especially given Ray's proclivity. And there are also speaking of that, you know, one thing you write about in the book that I remember Allison telling me was that prior to his disappearance, he was very paranoid because he thought, I guess she was on a track and he saw a man approach and he, he can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it was the week before the, before he went missing. A number of strange things happened. Um, they, um, the alarm went off in their, in their home a couple of times and it had never happened before. Mm -hmm. And Ray was, leapt out of bed and was absolutely terrified. Mm -hmm. And um, he was also very frightened when she was jogging at a track and a, a, a a man approached her and he seemed terrified for a moment um they went to, they lived near a police station and they asked them about the alarm going off and the police said that squirrels had triggered it which seemed kind of mm. ridiculous to me yeah, yeah. That's but, a um, odd. but that's never happened with our alarm and no. then also um the the sunday before his death after they went to church and after church he made a call to someone and said i finally got it all figured out mm. and oh. that that was to Stansbury. Stansbury admitted he he took that, or he got the message, but he had no idea. He said oh, what it related wow. to. That's so, rather yeah. cryptic. Yes, that's very yeah. strange. Uh, you know, I mean, now I don't know if we're going to get sued for talking about this, but you know, one of the things that was fascinating to me when I was writing about the story was the fact that Porter Stansbury was fighting this lawsuit by the SEC, and this is all factual. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very unusual to get sued by the SEC. Um, for publishing something, but he was successfully sued, right, by the SEC for publishing a stock tip that turned out not to be really right, a stock yeah. tip. And and he fought it for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there was a bench trial, and it went to the Supreme Court, and he had all kinds of um, publishers on his side. Yeah, I mean, like the he New York made Times a, and yeah, stuff, yeah, he made a he made a, a good case, but was eventually defeated. And but and this was right at the time that Ray was working for right. him, so when newspapers did make connections My between newspaper. these two <laughs> right then naturally the people at agora were um well perhaps naturally but were um shocked and scandalized by this but it and angry it, yeah <laughs> angry but it does seem it's impossible not to put two and two together no. and make some kind of connection there that you're you're writing stock tips 
and a newsletter for a person who has just been sued for publishing a, a similar yeah. newsletter. So there was speculation that maybe he had in his work at Agora discovered something or come right. across someone or got, I got to know someone. Perhaps, like that. I perhaps got emails he like, had figured something out. I got emails from out. people saying that Ray was a whistleblower yeah. and he knew something. Some deep, I mean, the, the bottom line is that, you know, I talked to the SEC and factually speaking, the SEC that 1,200 people bought the stock tip about a Russian company that had some sort of great... Uh, tip about uranium or something, and and they netted 1.2 million dollars from that one single newsletter. So, right. I mean, you know, I can't draw any conclusions from that, but it's it's very interesting coincidence, I guess one could say. Yeah, and even though individual investors themselves might not have lost much money to raise investing in raise newsletter, I think overall. There's a lot of um, animosity about yeah. about the the strategies and the tactics used by Agora. Yes. Yeah, it's, they're controversial. I think it's very fair to say that they are controversial. Um, um, you know, it's a controversial company in some ways. So, what uh, you know, what story from this or piece of evidence really stood out to you, evocative of this case? You know, that, that sort of defined it for you in terms of the mystery that surrounds it. Was there anything like in particular that you said, okay, this is just this case goes right down the rabbit hole for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, even though it turned out to be, I, I, I don't know, maybe it could turn out to be a red herring. I think the Freemason connection is the thing that kind of, because that's yeah. such yes. a classic. Yeah. Like, that adds you know, another mystery. layer. <laughs> yeah. E even though I couldn't find a anything connecting the Freemasons with this mystery, like there's so, there's so many conspiracy boards where this Rivera's death is connected to all kinds of oh yeah conspiracies and mysteries and but yeah the element the fact that he was reading this he was reading this book um, called The Builders which is an old book about the connections between the Freemasons and um, ancient Egypt mm. and that just yeah it's and the language that he used in the note I think that adds a touch of like a classic, classic <laughs> element to it. Yes, right. there's nothing right. the yeah. Freemasons can't facilitate in terms <laughs> right. of conspiracy theories. Right. And I mean, you talk to Frederick Buefeld and he, he's a member of the Freemasons, I believe. Buefeld, right. the former yeah. police yeah. commissioner. Yeah. Sorry, former yeah. police commissioner Frederick yeah. Buefeld. But, um, what did he think about the case? Did he say anything? He thought that the note could possibly be some kind of code. I mean, mm -hmm. but I think that, I don't think it, that it's surprising that he's a Freemason. A lot of police are Freemasons. Yes. Oh, yeah. And yeah. also, you know, I, I say this in the book, but I, I, um, I teach a course at my on, um, on rituals, and I invite Freemasons to come and talk. And in my experience, they're kind, charitable gentlemen doing good work. I haven't found uncovered any no. dark <laughs> conspiracy there. No. So, no, it's a pretty, um, pretty innocuous group, I think, yeah. at this point. Yeah. Well, listen, um, we really appreciate you coming in. Is there yes. anything else we missed in the book that you want to talk about? I mean, I, it, it's so complex. I mean, I really recommend people, you've really done a great service here in, in fleshing out all the details in, in, one of, in Baltimore especially, which is manufacturing cases of utter mystery. And, right, um, and I think you drew some very interesting conclusions yeah. that uh, people and might be surprised, oh, that we won't give away. And it's we very important, you, you do come to a conclusion, but you said, we were talking about that, I don't want to talk about it because I want people to buy your yeah. book and read it, but you said you're still open, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I think my conclusion is tentative, and one of the things that I'm hoping is that when people read the book, um, perhaps other things will come to light, and um, and 
provide some kind of conclusive um, resolution to the mystery. Thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved and our discussion with author Makita Brotman about her book, An Unexplained Death, The True Story of the Body at the Belvedere. If you have a case you want us to explore, please feel free to contact us through our Facebook page, Baltimore True Crime, and our website, landoftheunsolved.com. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works. We record at the Moose House Recording Studio, and our engineer is Ryan Escalopio. Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com, type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood or anywhere else for that matter. The best part, it's free. So be sure to check out spotcrime.com because safety begins with knowing. Be sure to listen to our next episode where we will continue our investigation into the unsolved death of Jody Le Cornu. I'm Stephen Janis. And I'm Taya Graham. And thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved.